0: 1 Timothy chapter 4. The notes are in the bulletin. Children are dismissed to Children's Church. And as you turn there, last week we closed out chapter 3 of this letter. We got to the halfway point. And, and up to this point, especially in chapters 2 and 3, Paul was dealing with proper ordering in the church. How the church should be structured. How the church should gather together. And beginning of chapter 2, how godly men are to lift up holy hands, praying for the nations, praying for kings and rulers. Um, Not with quarreling. And likewise, the women are to be in modest apparel, holiness. And then we spent chapter 3 looking at the qualifications of spiritual, godly leadership in the church. And chapter 3 culminated with this hymn of praise, this gospel song as Paul speaks of the church being the pillar and buttress of the truth, supporting the truth. And it comes to a sort of climax in that sense. And chapter 4 sort of turns a corner. If last week we looked at the mystery of godliness that Paul speaks about in 315, this week we look at the mystery of ungodliness. If last week we saw the church supporting the truth, proclaiming the truth, singing the truth, this week we see the descent of error. It ties back, really, to Paul's mission statement at the beginning of the book. If you turn back in 1 Timothy to chapter 1, verse 3, Paul tells Timothy why he left him there. Now, he wrote the letter to tell us how to conduct ourselves in the church. He left Timothy in Ephesus. Remember, Timothy is Paul's missionary planting companion and helper. in verse three of chapter one, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So Paul left Timothy, the church at Ephesus, to stop certain men from beginning to go off the reservation, teaching truth not truths, teaching myths, genealogies, novelties. Now in chapter 1, they haven't progressed to the level of heresy, of damnable error, but that's Paul's concern. He's sort of coming back around now in chapter 4 to deal with this issue. So read with me the first five verses of chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected. It was received with thanksgiving For it is made holy By the word of God And prayer Speaking of prayer Let's Offer this time to God Lord God We want To be a church That supports your truth We want to be a church That is ordered properly That is singing the gospel Lord we want you to guard us From error From the slow decline That has happened In so many churches So many denominations Slowly Slowly gradually falling away from the truth and so Lord help open our eyes so that we can learn how this happens so that we can guard against it happening so that we could understand how we can contend in a more faithful way for the truth Lord guard, guard us here um, Lord guard us and our faith shepherd us and keep us believing keep us loving you in Jesus name amen the section really breaks down into two chunks: um, one to three a is the Holy Spirit's warning, and then three um, b to five, the apostle's refutation. So we've got a warning, and he'll explain what the warning's about, what it makes up, and then the refutation. He's going to counter um, the teachings of these false teachers. So we'll look first at the Holy Spirit's warning, verse one. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. Now, whether this is a reference to Jesus' teaching—Jesus, in his earthly ministry, um, declared that there would be a time of falling away— whether this is a reference to Paul's own teaching to the Ephesians in Acts, whether this is a prophecy made, we don't know. What we do know is the Holy Spirit was warning the church, warning Paul, of dangers to come. and That's good of God. Now, if, if we're not struggling with these errors, don't think that we don't need to hear this. The Holy Spirit warned ahead of time so that the church could prepare to deal with it when it came. And so if we're not in the midst of these types of struggles now, believe me, given time, we will be. And so we should thank God for the warnings, we should thank God for the protection, and we should learn from the warnings so that we don't fall away, so that we hold fast to the truth. And the warning concerns what in the ESV says is the latter days. You see that there. Um, when? So, when is this warning? Last times, the final era. But before again, you begin to start thinking this is for some time future, if you just keep reading, Paul is addressing things that are going on at Ephesus. Um, he starts to describe these people. You see, the biblical understanding is that we are living in the last days. We are living in the last days. The last days are the period of time from Jesus' ascension into heaven in Acts 1 until his return and coming judgment. These are the last days. Um, we don't need to turn there, but in 2 Timothy um, chapter 3, 1-5, we see the same thing. Paul warning about error and false teaching coming in the latter times. And then he ends verse 5 by saying, avoid such people. The implication being, they're around us. Um... Hebrews chapter 1 talks about how God spoke to us in former times through the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. We are living in the last days. Now the last days, that means, are at least 2,000 years long. Um, It seems like a long last days, but this is the testimony of the Bible. So this is true for Paul's day in Ephesus, and it's true for our day here. This warning is not just for some future generation as we look through church history a little bit, we'll see that this, this has been going on in, in God's church periodically. So the when of the warning, the last times, but really that's now. That's now. The danger, the danger in the ESV is, is falling away, but you can put in your blank, apostasy. That's, that's the Greek word there, apostasy. What apostasy is, is the falling away of a professing believer from the faith. Now you cannot lose your salvation once you are truly united to Christ by faith. No one can snatch you out of his hands. But yet from our perspective, there are many people who appear to turn to Jesus. There are many people who appear to turn in faith to Jesus who over time prove that that never really happened. Um, 1 John says this way, they departed from us to show they are never of us or if we hold fast to the end, we have become partakers in Christ. This is Dave Lample's passage today in Hebrews, which says, persevering to the end proves your prior profession genuine. It doesn't get you saved. It it demonstrates your faith. And so the danger is a falling away. And if you think, we all know people who for a time made a profession of faith, for a time seemed to bear fruit, for a time seemed to love the Lord and are now cold, dead, and... Maybe even the Lord's enemy. The Lord talked about the, the seed thrown on thorny ground, on stony ground, that for a time sprung up, was choked, killed, and bore no fruit. And so that's the danger. Sadly, there are probably some in this room who 5, 10, 15 years from now may not be professing, walking with the Lord. And so this is a warning for us. Um, please don't think this is a warning for other people. This is a warning for us. The danger is apostasy, when in the last times, how is this going to happen? I think here is the, the help for us, is understanding how this happens. And Paul says it's by devotion to false teachings. The title of our message is, Truth Matters, the Dangers of False Teaching. You remember, Paul is zealous, jealous, passionate about the truth. And as we saw in chapter 1, verse 5, it's not just the truth abstracted from a life, but the truth that produces love and good works. Remember, he says the aim of our charge is love. Issuing from a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a good conscience. It's truth that lives itself out in life. Error will also, as we'll see, live itself out in life, bearing bad fruit. And so this all again gets back to truth. Truth. Remember a few weeks ago we saw that spiritual warfare is all about truth. And so of course the beginning of apostasy is in error, devoting ourselves to false teaching. Um, C.S. Lewis writes, um, as a matter of fact if you examine a hundred people who have lost their faith in Christianity I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Don't, Don't most people simply tend to drift away. You slowly get distracted from the gospel. You slowly get distracted from the main thing. You start to focus on peripheral things. Those lead you out to actually dangerous, error things. And before you know it, you're off the reservation. The gospel's over here. You're over here. That's how one falls away. By devoting ourselves to false teaching. Um, And we see that this ultimately has its origins in the spiritual realm. It's demonic. These teachings, these errors, ultimately, track back to the wall, he says, are the doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits. And again, this brings us back to the issue that the, the truth war, the war for truth, the fight for what men and women will believe is a spiritual battle. It also reminds us that we never truly stand alone. You are either being influenced by the Holy Spirit, renewing your mind, being transformed inwardly, or you are being influenced by other spirits. because the wisdom of this world, if you track the cord back to the wall, finds its origin in demons. in In first Corinthians ten, nineteen to twenty, speaking of false religion, Paul says, "What do I imply then that food offered to idol is anything or that an idol is anything?" No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. And and again, this helps understand our theology of world religions. See, Paul does not believe that we're all sort of trying to get there the same way. Paul does not believe that all roads lead to God. Paul does not believe that other people are honestly seeking God the best way they know how. There are two sources for truth. There is God... In his word, mediated by his spirit, and there is demonic wisdom and demonic truth. That is it. This notion of Paul partnering together with, with other religions it's just silly when you think of his view of them. Um, there's the truth, and that stands alone, and then over against the truth are a myriad of demonic lies. That's Paul's understanding of, of the way the breakdown of, of world religions. And so it means error. We're talking about this type of error, not things that we disagree on what the Bible means, but when we're dealing with things that are outside of the text, off the Bible, over here. I'm going to look at some examples in a few minutes. It's dangerous stuff. It's serious stuff. It's consequential stuff. Um, But we are never isolated. Remember Jesus in John 8, speaking to the Pharisees, says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do his will. Because either you're believing the truth and the Holy Spirit of God is filling you and influencing you, or you are believing lies and the God of this world is influencing you. But you are never spiritually alone. Understand that. you are. No one is ever spiritually alone. You're on one team or the other. You're being influenced by one side or the other. You're believing God's truth or demonic lies. There's, there's no third middle position where you're neutral. And so Paul wants us to pick the right team and to Earnestly contend for the faith, but to understand there is no at this point honest error. It moves on. If if demons stand behind this teaching, well, how does it get into the world? Because who would honestly want to believe a demon? If a demon showed up and we'd probably run for cover. Well, demons use people through the insincerity of liars, and really it's hypocrites and liars in the Greek. The Greek word hypocrite is a term for an actor. Hupo, krite, hupo, like a hypodermic needle that goes under. It's under and mask. And so in the Greek drama, they would wear masks. The actors would wear masks. And so if their character was a happy character, they'd put the happy mask on. If he was a sad character, they'd put the sad mask on. And so if you're speaking from under a mask, you're an actor. You're pretending. And so they, it becomes clear. These, these people who propagate these lies, and, and here's the important thing. They don't look evil you know false teaching wouldn't wouldn't be attractive if all the people who taught it had curly mustaches and, and had you know evil laughs you know um, no they're not they're, they're attractive they're charismatic they're friendly they're appealing they can seem self-effacing they can look all sorts of good and we can be deceived by that we can be deceived by oh he's so nice Seem seems so kind. It, but here, these teachers, they're hypocrites. They're speaking from under their mask. And they're liars. They're, they're doubly liars. They misrepresent who they are, and they speak lies. So they're dishonest about themselves, and they're dishonest with their teaching. And we, we see that this leads to, or comes from, the fact that they have a seared conscience. And this is now the, the third or fourth time that conscience has shown up in this book. We're going we're to just track it back in chapter 1, verse 5. Remember, because conscience is important. This is one of the themes that sort of goes through First Timothy. Is how the truth can purify a conscience or how a corrupted conscience can lead to error. His charge, remember, is that Timothy would regulate the teaching, would stop certain people from teaching um, debatable, contentious, novel doctrines. And then he says in verse 5, the aim of our charge, the goal of this command, Timothy, is love. It issues from pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Paul's after love. And the way you get to genuine Christian love is through truth. You can't get to genuine Christian love any other way than with with a foundation of truth. And that love... Is, is united with a pure heart sincere faith and a good conscience go to the end of chapter 1 where Paul again charges Timothy with this task he says this charge I entrust you referring back to three. Timothy my child in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you that by them you may wage the good warfare and how do you wage the good warfare? holding faith truth a good conscience by rejecting this some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are hymenaeus and alexander whom i've handed over to satan that they may not blaspheme and though here's two examples of two apostates they have made shipwreck of their faith which is another way of saying they've crashed the ship it's sunk shipwrecked vessels don't make it to port and they did it by rejecting faith in a good conscience deacons we saw have to hold the mystery of the faith in chapter 3 with a clean conscience these false teachers who are speaking under masks pretending to be one thing but really being another speaking lies their consciences are seared and this this is a graphic picture um, sometimes when there's a wound the nerve endings are are painful Um, a doctor, especially back in policy, might take a hot iron and sear the wound. It does two things. It cauterizes the wound so that it doesn't bleed anymore. But oftentimes, more importantly, it, it dulls the nerve endings so that the wound no longer hurts. And that's the picture here, and it's a frightening one. God has given us all a conscience. Everyone, believers and unbelievers, are given a conscience. And the danger is that as we ignore our conscience, as we... You know, just sort of hit the snooze alarm over and over and over and over. That sin that was super convicting last month now doesn't really bother you as much anymore, does it? It just, you know, everyone's got sin problems, everyone, you know, struggles with things. And then give it a little bit more time, and, you know, it's really quite understandable. You get a little more time, and, you know, what's wrong with this? And something that, you know, you would have been mortified with a year ago, you're now at peace with. because your conscience has been seared, deadened. It's, it's It's a frightening thing. John Stott writes this, The grim sequence of events in the career of the false teacher has now been revealed. First, they turn a deaf ear to their own conscience until it becomes cauterized. Next, they felt no scruples in becoming hypocritical liars. Thirdly, they thus exposed themselves to the influence of deceiving spirits. Finally, they led their listeners to abandon the faith. It is a perilous downward path from the deaf ear and the cauterized conscience to the deliberate lie, the deception of demons, and the ruination of others. You sort of get how this works. You you want to tend to your conscience. Your conscience is a gift from God. It It is the always vigilant, always awake, guard on the city walls, warning of danger. Letting us know when we're about to, or when we have done something that God would not have us do. And you want to keep it fresh. You want to keep it active, vigilant. But if you ignore it, you press it down, you can silence it. And, and so it's not surprising that these false teachers have done just that. And, and really, this notion of suppressing truth is at the heart of false religion. It's at the heart of sin. You remember a year or two ago when we started our Romans series in chapter one. I want you to listen to what God is angry about. In fact, fact, turn there. Turn to Romans chapter one. Turn to Romans chapter one. And just after Paul announces in Romans the goodness of the gospel, how he's not ashamed of it, how it is... Powerful to save Immediately Turns and addresses What we need saving from And so in Romans 1 18 to 22 What is God angry at What makes sin so sinful Why do we need a savior And don't think it's because of all the bad things We do those are bad things And at the end of chapter 1 they're listed About 26 of them But the heart of sin is something Far far darker and more subtle For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God. The heart of sin is holding down what you know to be true so you can do what you want, holding down what you know to be true so you can live how you want to live. You know, just just sort of ignoring your conscience, putting your fingers in your ears, hitting the snooze alarm so you can do what you want to do without accountability. So you can do what you want to do without consequence. And the scary thing in this passage in Romans, if you keep reading, you'll see three times God gives such people over to their sin. If you want to ignore your conscience in time, God will let you. That's a scary thing. God will give you what you want. Be careful what you ask for, you, you may get it conscience bothering you give it some time it won't give it some time it won't conversely if you want to sharpen your conscience then deal with it when it convicts you of wrong confess it get right with God honor your conscience it's so important in this book it's so important for the fight of the faith, for holding the truth. And what happens is as we start to dull our conscience, we begin to become play actors because we're not living as God would have us live, but we're still going to church and we don't want other people to know that. So we begin putting on a front. And that's how the mask starts to come on because, you know, we want to keep up appearances. And then the lies come along that, that are needed to keep up that appearance. And before you know it, you're heading down this path. This is the mystery of ungodliness. This is how apostasy happens. This is how slowly, gradually, subtly, we drift away from the truth. It's always moral. It's always moral. And always has to do with truth and the conscience. They have a seared conscience. So what is their specific error? And here we get to specifics. Now, error can happen in all sorts of ways. I think this warning from the Holy Spirit deals with all types of error. But the error in Ephesus was asceticism. Asceticism. And asceticism, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is the practice of severe self discipline and abstinence from all forms of pleasure, especially for religious or spiritual reasons. Asceticism is the practice of severe self-discipline and abstinence from all forms of pleasure, especially for religious and spiritual reasons. You see, their teaching was to forbid or promote abstinence from marriage and from eating certain foods. And what what it appears to be, uh, as we piece together the New Testament accounts of the early church heresies, that Platonic thinking had influenced the church. Plato taught that the physical world was was corrupted it was bad and the spiritual noumenal world was good Have you ever heard of platonic dualism that's where it comes from which is as we've said why the earliest christological heresies were the denial of jesus humanity how on earth could the perfect god really enter into this corrupt world and so anything physical anything earthly was viewed as inferior corrupt Bad and certainly things that give physical pleasure are carnal, earthly, fallen. And so it was this notion that you sort of ascend this through knowledge. In fact, the early heresy was named after the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis, and it's called Gnosticism. And we see evidences it throughout the New Testament. And so these people are saying basically, if you want to be super spiritual, you just you just don't give your body any pleasure. You just anything that's physical and pleasing you just shun that's how you enter into enlightenment that's how you enter into the higher spiritual life and walk now that's not as much the error in the church today um, you can fall off a table two ways you can you can eschew pleasures of this world or you can worship them like a hedonist I think the American culture probably is far more in danger of the latter than the former but if you look through church history, this, this is not an infrequent thing that shows up. The whole basis behind the monastic tradition um, in, in most circles is this notion of men of God getting away and you know, removing physical pleasures, living in stone cells, sleeping very little, living a rigorous, difficult life, um, and thus becoming more godly, more spiritual. Um, and we look through that tradition. You're, I'm sure you won't have to think hard to think of some Christian traditions where marriage is forbidden in its leadership. Um, so this is this is real world stuff. In, especially in their day, it was a big deal. Aestheticism, And so they forbid marriage, and they forbid foods. Um, just to give you some idea of this, turn to Colossians chapter 2. Turn to Colossians chapter 2 this This error, this heresy was showing up there as well. There's um, evidence written in, in numerous New Testament books. Colossians chapter two, and we'll look at uh, verses sixteen to twenty three. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink with regard to a festival, a new moon, or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. but The substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, instruct insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous minds, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perished as they are used? According to human precepts and teaching, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There it is. There it is. This is what these guys were teaching, that the spiritual life, the higher life, the, you know, the sort of second-tier Christianity, the people who really understood and were godly, they sort of laid aside all creature comforts and just were sort of spiritually minded and it started corrupting the gospel. It started corrupting the faith. And this is not to say that self-discipline and even austerity are bad things. John the Baptist lived a very austere life. And, and next week we'll see that there is a form of Christian um, discipline, an authentic discipline. In our next section, is Paul talks about disciplining yourself for godliness. Um, so we again, we don't want to run the other way too far. But... It's one thing to discipline ourselves for godliness. It's another to to sort of earn God's favor, to become super spiritual because we aren't involved in the things of this world that might, you know, please us. So so what's the answer then? What is the answer to asceticism? And I think here, not just this error, but helping us guard from other false teaching as well, we're going to see six things. Because Paul thinks that this teaching is ungrateful, unfaithful and unbiblical and so we're going to look at it through six points to help us refute this teaching this error guard us from it in the future Um, and it can show up in subtle ways let's give you one example when I was in seminary um, you start reading church history and you realize how many um, of our church fathers Calvin Luther even guys today like Al Mohler got like three or four hours of sleep a night regularly And then what sort of creates is this sort of culture where if you're really godly, if you're really spiritual, if you really want to be used by God, you sort of train yourself to get to live off of three or four hours of sleep. Now there's a reason Calvin and Luther died as young as they did. Um, (laughs) There there is. There's a reason. Why Spurgeon—I'm reading Spurgeon's autobiography right now. These guys all burned out because they worked like 80 hours a week. Um, And that's what God called them to Okay, praise God. But this can sort of generate this sort of spiritual, you know, how many hours of sleep are you getting, you know? And it's the sin, the same thing. That somehow, if we can just treat our body harshly, we become more spiritual. And it's, it's error. It's corrupt. So, the first is we have to understand the goodness of God's creation. We have to understand the goodness of God's creation. And that, that's where this whole thing starts. The, the fundamental error with this sort of platonic dualism is it starts by thinking the created world is bad and in some sense that is an indictment on God because God after all made it yes it's fallen yes it's under a curse but it's still in many ways good this echoes God's pronouncement in Genesis 1 where he said it was very good Paul says that in verse 3b um, that all Everything God created is to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good And nothing is to be rejected if it was received with thanksgiving For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer So you've got to start with a biblical worldview that says the world that God made is good I think it's interesting that these two things marriage and food are picked because they're right there in genesis 1 and 2 God made the world in genesis 1 he gave the plants and the fruit for man to eat and it was very good what was the only thing not good well if the man was alone so what completes the goodness of creation marriage does you see how these denial no you can't eat that food you can't eat that that's too tasty that's bad and no marriage is bad that's physical that's sensual that's carnal you don't want to do that is a denial of the goodness of god's creation And so Paul goes back to Genesis 1 referencing the goodness of God and it says, if you think the created world is bad, think again. You've got an unbiblical worldview. God's creation is good. So you've got to understand the goodness of creation and secondly, you've got to believe the gospel. He says that these, these foods and marriage to be received with thanksgiving are for those people, he says, who are believing and know the truth. For those who believe and know the truth, and that phrase, know the truth, we saw back in chapter 2 refers to coming to faith. God desires all men to come to know the truth. And so, if you, if you want to fight this error, first you got to know the Genesis account of creation and God's goodness. Second, you've got to believe it and, and know the truth. Third, and this is really the emphasis, is you need to be thankful. You need to be thankful. It's kind of fitting on our, our Sunday that we celebrate our Thanksgiving feast that, that this is the emphasis of our text. That that all the things we're to eat later on today, if you receive it with thankfulness, God is honored. God is pleased. As we receive with thankfulness the good things he's created. Um, speaking of thankfulness, um, Knight writes, the repeated emphasis on thankfulness reminds the reader that it is thankful acceptance of God's good gifts that is being defended and not some autonomous materialism or hedonism the antidote to rejecting God's creation is not simply receiving it but receiving it with thankfulness to God acknowledging him as the good giver of gifts so the put off and the put on you put off this asceticism you don't just put on materialism you don't just put on well just enjoy the world you know Get as much as you can. You know, you only live once. That's not Paul's replacement. The replacement is thankfulness. Being thankful in the world around us, in the creation around us. And remember, back in Romans 1, that was the error. They weren't thankful. They didn't want to live a life thankful to God, so they suppressed the truth. The remedy, thankfulness. Point D, be scriptural. Be scriptural. And and here, in verse 5, and he says that all these things received are made holy by the word of God in prayer. And what he means is this. We can judge the acceptableness of something by holding up to scripture. And so, for instance, if you ask the question, can we eat all foods? We well, just go to Acts chapter 10, where God has a sheet to send to Peter, and he says, arise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, I don't eat unclean food. And God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Now, this is a metaphor to speak of the inclusion of the Gentiles. But the food laws are gone. They're gone. And so Scripture can tell you that. They're made clean by the Word of God. The Word of God tells you in Genesis 1 that these things were made good for us to eat, good for us to use. So be scriptural. And you think of those Bereans in Acts 17:11, when Paul came preaching the gospel. It's written, now these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, now listen to this, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so, hold up everything to the word of God, because we're going to be troubled. Is this something I can do? Is this a movie I can watch? Is this a food I can eat? Is this an activity I can participate in? Well, have a biblical worldview of creation. Be a believer in the gospel. The next question is, can I thank God for this? I mean, this, this is just a good sort of litmus test for activity. Can I thank God for what I'm about to do? Can I thank God for what I'm about to eat? And, and we say grace at meals, and that's good, but we should really be saying grace at all sorts of activities. G.K. Chesterton writes, you say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the play. And grace before the concert. And grace before I open a book. And grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing. And grace before I dip pen to ink. You want to know if something's acceptable? You want to have a clean conscience of what you're doing? A good litmus test. Can I be thankful to God for what I'm doing? Another good litmus test. Does this line up with scripture? Third, be prayerful. I mean, not third, sorry. Fifth, be prayerful. Um, be prayerful. He says these things are sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And again, if you're looking for a litmus test for how to judge the acceptability of of things, because hedonism is a danger. And, and next week we'll deal with that to some degree. Um, the solution isn't a list of rules. The solution is a heart attitude that believes in the gospel, that has a biblical worldview, a thankful heart. A scriptural understanding. A prayerful spirit. Praying. And then point F. It's implied in the text. Be keeping a clean conscience. You want to guard yourself from error. You want to guard yourself from deception. Keep your conscience clean. The second. The second you start letting your conscience grow. Moss. Watch out. Watch out. Because you're either walking in the light with God, or you're walking in darkness. And once you start walking in darkness, don't expect that you're going to be smart enough to figure truth and error out. Once your relationship with God starts to get some daylight between you and Him, don't expect you're going to be strong enough on your own to resist and understand error from truth. So the Apostle Paul gives us six truths, six helps to guard us from apostasy, to guard us from error, And it's important because this this is a subtle slide, a subtle slipping away. So understand the goodness of God's creation. Believe the gospel. Be thankful. Be scriptural. Be prayerful. And be keeping a clean conscience. Let's close in a word of prayer. And then Jeb Brewer will have an announcement from the elders. Lord God, we just um, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this created world. Lord, we anticipate gathering in a few hours today to be thankful and to rejoice at the goodness of your creation. So, Lord, give us that biblical worldview. Give us those thankful hearts. Give us eyes of faith to believe your gospel. Make us a prayerful people. And, Lord God, help us to cherish and guard our consciences. In Jesus' name, amen.